peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, it's the season three finale. We're going to be taking lots of questions from the chat on YouTube. Lots of gems, lots of Coke spoons, and lots of... Someone really should write a book of Bruce Lee's real fights. Let's get to it. And every day, I practice martial arts. Yo, yo, yo. How's it going, guys? Never mind this background here. <laughs> Hope you guys are doing well. Um, yeah, so here we are in the season finale. How are you doing, Mikey? Good, good, Seagong. Very good indeed, actually. Apologies for the miscommunication when you said StreamYard. I was like, oh, cool. I didn't actually think that I was supposed to come over to your house, which I would have yes. done as well, to be fair. But there you yeah, go. Yeah, because we have all this new fancy equipment like cameras and stuff. It's all at my house. And then when I'm like, yeah, we're going to do something, it's like, yeah, because you're going to come and set that up, right? Because, like, I'm not the setup video camera genius, right? Uh, the So I'm doing this off of my phone because I just didn't have time to set up the camera because I was teaching a private lesson up until 15 minutes before we went on the air. So I was like, huh, my private lesson's almost done, but Mikey's not at my place yet. <laughs> You're on your phone. My actual good laptop is still at the school after my birthday on Saturday, so I'm on my um, porno laptop. You know what I'm saying? So Excellent, excellent. <laughs> so ha happy belated to Mikey. You, you're now, what, 23 years old? How old are you? Um, 24. 24. That's a that's a good age. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, about 50. If you say 200% of 24 is probably closer to where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we had, uh, as, as listeners of our podcast probably remember, uh, in the last couple episodes, we were talking about doing a Jeopardy quiz show for the season finale, where it would be me asking questions to both you and Dre uh, in Jeopardy format and quiz show format. And uh, while we very much wanted that one to be the season finale, it just wasn't, um, it just wasn't coming together time-wise. However, we have already recorded that episode. So we did record um, what otherwise would have been the season finale, the quiz show episode, which was hilarious. It's a little shorter because we actually burned through the questions pretty quickly, but it was very funny. Um, I actually had a really good time doing that. Did you have, did you have fun doing that episode, Mikey? Oh, it was so much fun. I was, it was, it, it was cool. It went exactly how I kind of, we thought it would, but at the same time, I was also nervous that he was going to like take me to town. You know what I mean? I was like, do I really remember all of this? You know, age-related <laughs> decline up here, you know, I'm just like. Sure. But yeah, it was a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So that episode might end up being episode one or two of the next season. So, um, but we have recorded it. We also have a super awesome interview that's already been done. Oh yeah. And so we have a lot of really fun stuff uh, for season four now. Um, so we're gonna have more interviews, lots more stuff for the audience. So like, you know, we're kind of getting an idea of what people like and what people want. So we're gonna do that. So. For this season finale, we figured we'd do a live. We'd answer questions from the audience, maybe do a little bit of uh, reminiscing on uh, season three, which was so much fun. And uh, we'll go from there. So what do you say, Mikey? I'm down. So Khan, someone give us a question. Otherwise, we're going to have to just start talking at you. Well, which we're, which we're kind of used to doing anyway. What I'm going to do in the meantime is I'm going to pull up our uh, playlist. So for people who don't know, if you ever want to go back and watch episodes of KFG, 
more or less in reverse consecutive order. We have these on playlists. We have a playlist for season one, season two, season three. Uh, I sometimes pack some extra stuff in the playlist, like things that aren't full podcast episodes, like uh, the Coke Spoon thing or the Bruce Lee drug letters, you know, the perennial favorites. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, it looks like we do actually, in fact, have a question. Uh, I didn't know all those Shen Yun billboards are the public front for the anti-communist Falun Gong. If that's true, does that make Shen Yun the Falun Gong show? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let's let's start off getting political right away, right? Uh, I want to lower my social credit in China as quickly as possible. So, um, yeah, so this, uh, you see the posters, especially in New York, you see the posters everywhere for the Shen Yun um, performance, which is basically... Chinese style uh, performances, dance and operatic stuff and acrobats and everything like that. And so um, they, that's been going on for a number of years. Uh, but if you ever look at the posters, you'll see it'll say like, you know, celebrating the glorious history of China and China before communism, you know, before the communists came and destroyed Chinese culture, um, which whatever your feelings are of uh, communism or stuff like that, they, they did in fact more or less destroy most of Chinese culture in China. And so Falun Gong is a cult. Um, they are kind of like a Qigong cult. Uh, they believe that their dear leader can float and do all sorts of things, maybe not unlike some delusional Kung Fu idiots. Um, but it's basically a, 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 um, a Qigong cult. But in reality, they are like a very strong anti-China propagandist machine. Now, of course, I have mixed emotions about it because... Uh, as a half Cuban, um, I don't have a lot of particularly particular love for that form of government. Um, however, I also really hate cults. So the idea that this cult is against something that I'm otherwise not really super. I mean, I don't really care about the Chinese government or how they, uh, you know, whether they're communist or not. This is not something I lose sleep about overnight. Um, but on the other hand, I don't really support cults. So um, while, you know, sticking it to China and their awful human rights abuses and the Falun Gong guys were basically persecuted in China, arrested and beaten and pretty horrific, actually. And I think that in the old days, they used to have all the signs in Chinatown where you could see like the Falun Gong members in cages being beaten in China. And I think that that didn't really take people didn't like to look at people being beat up and tortured and go, that looks like fun. Let, let me join that group that's getting beaten up and tortured. So maybe they decided then, let's have a fun, happy Chinese propaganda show instead. So basically, the Shen Yun has become like the sunnier face of Falun Gong. But that's all I'm going to say about that. Well, you, uh, so, you say yeah. that you hate cults, but you are kind of a bit of a cult leader yourself. Um, anytime you run a, a martial arts school where people go partially because they learn the martial arts, partially because, oh, they heard about the guy who's teaching. Um, yeah, there's always that kind of that kind of vibe. I would have to say City Wing Chun definitely was a little bit more culty when I was part of the IWTA because we had all the extra rules from coming on coming on high, right, from, from top to bottom. But uh, since I became independent, you know, it's like we still follow Chinese culture, you see Fu Hangs, all that kind of stuff, but uh, with a lot less of, like, the weirdness and cultiness of the Long Tang Association. For me, it's really just about the Wing Chun. And uh, But, yeah, I suppose... Sometimes these things develop like a cult of personality, but I don't, I don't force people to stay. And if people want to leave, I don't go on a camp, Scientological campaign to ruin their lives for leaving my school. 
unlike some, unlike some other WT people who are still around these days. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, anyway, um, Django67 asks, have you heard of the sparring match between Bruce Lee and Joey Orbillo or, or Beal? Actually, I have. I talked to uh, John Little about that. And uh, Joey Orbillo was a, I believe, a ranked boxer at the time um, and had a sparring match with Bruce Lee. And supposedly, Bruce Lee worked circles around this guy. And I've heard that Joey Orbillo is actually still around. So um, perhaps this is a season four uh, guest for us to get, right? Uh, the boxer who sparred Bruce Lee and you know had nothing but nice things to say about Bruce afterwards. Um, yeah, so so that is something I have heard about. Um, would love to explore it more. Um, and I believe that um, Mr. Orbio is still around. So if he is, I would love to get him on the podcast if if this is even something that he would do. Um, I think that would be absolutely amazing. So yeah, um, what else we got here? Don't support cults. What kind of attitude is that? <laughs> I, know, right? I don't know. I, I really, I, I really have a strong distaste for cults and the kind of cult mentality and the control from the dear leader and stuff like that. It's really not, uh, really not something that I'm into. Um, <laughs> all right. uh, whole cosmos. Anyone watch the performance? Is it good? I kind of want to see it despite the controversy. Well, there's no controversy. I mean, they're going to shovel a bunch of uh, anti-China propaganda, which you know, if you don't have any particular love for China and, and how they treat people. I'm sure it's nothing too bad, right? Um, but no, I mean, the performers are um, legit uh, performers of various Chinese um, performances. So you have uh, you have Chinese dancing, you have Chinese acrobats. I, I don't know what else they do. Maybe they have the face change. If, you've ever, uh, if you've never seen the Chinese face changing performance, it's really, really impressive. As a matter of fact, I just saw one a couple weeks ago. My youngest daughter, um, uh, wanted to go for hot pot in Flushing. And she says, oh, we got to go to this new, it's like my kids know all the hot spots. And like, I, you know, I like don't even know where the cool places are to go. And like, you know, my daughter's like, daddy, you got to go to this. Don't go to that hot pot place. No one goes there anymore. Like you got to go to this one. Right. And so we went to a hot pot place, which had like all sorts of entertainment and the place was amazing. And the uh they had like dancing and they had a face changing performance so what it is is you have a the performer is dressed in traditional chinese garb a little bit like guan gong like general quan like the long chinese garb kind of like long beard type thing and they have a face mask like a chinese painted face mask and they do this kind of dancing and then they'll just kind of wave their hand in front of their face and the mask changes and it's, I'm not even sure how they do it because you don't see a change. It just goes from one, it's a completely different mask. And then they'll dance and they'll go like this and it'll be a different face. It'll be a different face. Very impressive. I actually have a, a friend of mine, uh, Sifu Joey, Joe Kwong from uh, Hong Kong. He's a Charlie Fat Sifu who does that performance. And I've seen it live in Hong Kong. And I just saw a version of it at the hot pot place in Flushing a couple of weeks ago, which is pretty impressive. So, yeah. Nice. We got to go, Mikey. Maybe after, well, we're going to do karaoke. Are we not for your birthday? Yeah, Friday. You're all Friday. invited if you're in the city. We're all going to karaoke. I, I can't wait. That's going to be so much fun. Hey, it's going to be a great weekend. Karaoke with you on uh, Friday. And Saturday, I'm going to go see Ronnie Cheng perform oh, at Radio, Radio City Music Hall. So I'm very, very excited about that. That will be, that will be a great weekend. That will be awesome. Oh, my God. All right, so we got a couple of other questions coming in here. So, all right, what we got? 
what we got um or oh, not that one we've already done haha <laughs> now this is fantastic what a great mug that is um uh, one, one of my students from france got it for me <laughs> well i'm i'm drinking out of a measuring cup which just goes to show you how much of an adult i am you know. <laughs> is that pyrex <laughs> yes <it is. laughs> anyway so the question for the kfg bfg which i'm assuming is us what was you and mikey's favorite episode you recorded in season three best memories from this season oh uh we had a lot of fun ones i mean i know personally you and i we had a really good time doing the hong kong recap because we basically got to reminisce about one of our favorite trips ever would that would that be probably your favorites because we did a few of those yeah i i definitely say so you know what i mean those those were really really good because we really got to kind of go into some some great stuff that happened and just like kind of like just like explain it in a you know quite 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 a sort of like fun way you know what i mean reminisce about stuff that had literally happened i don't know only a month earlier but it was so fantastic you know what i mean but you know that being said, um, I actually really liked the last um, the, the couple of interviews. Like last Steve Carriage interview was was really really great. You know, like yes, that was cool. And and those rare occasions when Dre would pop back just to say hi. You know, I think around the time when um, they found out about Tupac's murder, and that that, that, was, <laughs> that was a good time for all of us. We'd all we'd all been very su successful in like kind of celebrating that. I think. <laughs> It's going to be uh it's gonna become KFG lore uh when like ten years from now people realize what we were talking about when we said they solved Tupac's murder. It's a <laughs> euphemism. <laughs> They're gonna be like, wait, wait, wait. They they weren't actually so excited about solving Tupac's murder, although we were we were maybe talking about something else. But that was that was a lot of fun. Um yeah, yeah so for me, I, I love the Hong Kong VCAP episodes. Um, but I also liked a, uh, I, I like the Cantonese for Wing Chun Dummies episode, uh, the one that I did with Gloria. Um, she's a Cantonese teacher from China, from Fatsan, and I did that episode. It's episode 142 for anyone who uh, who wants to know. Um, and there we actually went through all the terminology people need to know for Wing Chun, you know, Pak Sao, Fok Sao, all those things. And it was interesting because she's not a Wing Chun person. So I sent her the characters and then I'm like, okay, so how do we pronounce this? And she's like, oh, you pronounce it this way. And then and then she would actually, as a non-Kung Fu person, would be like, so maybe this thing means this. It was interesting to see what she thought it meant, just knowing Chinese but not knowing Wing Chun. Um, and so that is a really fun one. And if anyone is interested in actually learning Cantonese, um, even just learning a little bit of Cantonese for your Wing Chun or Jeet Kune Do training, um, it, uh, check her out. Uh, if you go to episode 142 of Kung Fu Genius, uh, you would learn a lot from that. But her information is in there, and she's also on Instagram at, as a Dope Chinese, and she's she's amazing. So um, if anyone's serious about learning Cantonese, I would definitely recommend that. So that was fun. I had yeah. a really good time doing the Bay Logan interview because – it was also the first time I had seen Bay Logan since COVID. And so it was great to just sit with him. And and that conversation that we had, um, which we talked about everything from Wing Chun movies to Donnie Yen to Bruce Lee. Um, honestly, those are conversations I've had with Bay Logan way back in the day. So pretty much almost everything he said I knew already. But those were all interesting things that I thought the audience would like. So I basically had a conversation with Bay Logan that I've already had many times in the past. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And that episode also did really well. So if you have not seen the 
Wing Chun on film, Bruce Lee screams explained with Bay Logan. That's episode 141. So 141 and 142, two are my favorites, along with the Hong Kong recap episodes it did with Mikey. So well, what else we got here? I was also just wanted to say it was probably not one of your favorite episodes, but um, the last Beardy recap amused me greatly. Oh, yes, yes, yes. As much as we love <laughs> trashing Beardy, um, I do have to tell people, like, so here's the recap episode so we could do, like, the postmortem. On the morning that we recorded the last Beardy bashing episode, which let me let me just take a look. The last Beardy bashing episode uh, was 134. It was Beardy's Bruce Lee's Bullshit Part 2, More Fake Stories Debunked. If you notice, I'm kind of in a salty mood in that episode. Mm-hmm. And that was because right before we went online, right before, or not online, right before we recorded, I was going through some stuff on that day, some stuff I normally never have to go through, but was going through it. And I was just like, I'm going to let this beardy dude have it. And any kind of anger or vitriol that you can feel from Beardy's Bruce Lee bullshit part two is because I was in an awful mood for that episode. And I think when you see the, um, when you see the um, outtakes, you can tell. And, and I was like, and, and I think I was even a little impatient with Dre on the day too. I was like, but yeah, I, I, I suppose you had a good time because you knew I was just losing my shit the whole episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. you, you were salty AF that day. Oh, my God. That's right. That's right. Uh, what else we got? And I don't know, Mikey, because you're the one manning the stream yard. You can pop those questions on the ticker below. Oh, yeah, of course. I always forget that I can do this. How about this one, then? There we go. Oh. Um, KFG, please discuss what you believe came first. The Wing Chun YGKYM stance or the swords? I've seen a suggestion that the YGKYM was a sword fighting stance that we adopted to our fist fighting footwork. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, of course, when it comes to history, it's always very difficult to say because we are not working uh, as Wing Chun Sifu with any um, primary sources. All right. Um, as I talked about many times uh, in this season, I got a little bit of the history bug uh, this year. And I did uh, some courses online uh, from a historian uh, named Richard Carrier. Uh, He's a PhD from Columbia University. His main thing is actually religious studies, uh, really um, like New Testament and like, you know, whether Jesus is a real figure or not. And that's one of the hardest topics to go into because of the problem with those sources, right? And But what he does is he approaches it as a historian, not as a theologian, not as a religious person. And the application of the proper historical model, when I started reading his books on how, what is proper historical research and what is just hearsay and saying, well, it must be true because some other Sifu said it, right, which is mostly what we do in in, in Chinese martial arts, I I realized very quickly how shoddy um, the historical claims are from pretty much every single Chinese martial arts Sifu or anyone purporting to teach anything related to Chinese martial arts history. Um, We have no primary sources when it comes to these kind of things. Um, In other words, we don't have a firsthand written account from Leung John himself, a book written by Leung John where he actually says these things and we know it was written by him. We don't have anything like that. We don't have anything like that from Chan Wa Shan. We certainly don't have it 
for anything predating Lerm Jan. So the problem is we have only hearsay in Chinese martial arts and in Wing Chun in particular. Um, really, uh, until the 1950s, until Yip Man came onto the scene, we really just have second, third, and fourth-hand stories, uh, probably misheard, retold incorrectly, and um, that's a really big problem. So we can only speculate about, you know, what some of these things might be. We can put a couple things together. We can look at what some of the other Chinese martial arts do. Um, so, but we cannot say anything for certain, okay? Having said that, I actually think this question is a little bit more straightforward. I think I actually might be able to answer this question, not with 100% certainty, because no one can do that, but with a fair amount of certainty. Um, the Yi Ji Kim Yue Ma, the character to goat clamping stance, which is the proof that Wing Chun does not come from the city. No one from a city would name a stance a goat clamping stance, okay? Um, it would be, you know, the, it would be the, the diva stance or whatever. It would, it would have a way slicker, way more cosmopolitan name. Um, what a lot of Wing Chun people sometimes don't know is that Yi Ji Kim Yang Ma is not a stance that only exists in Wing Chun. As a matter of fact, it is a stance also used in Hong Kong. And uh, so I believe that Wing Chun shares a common ancestor with other Southern martial arts that also use this stance. So we are not the only people using this stance. We might be some of the only people who use it more in our regular training. Some of the other styles use this stance maybe just for forms for internal training um, or for certain solo applications for, for training power, but they might not use it in their fighting, whereas we have a variation of the frontal Yi Ji Kim Yong Ma stance in fighting, and it forms the basis. It is the mother stance of the other two primary stances in Wing Chun. Um, but uh, we are not the only one with it, and there are other styles that use it, and those styles, for the most part, predate Wing Chun, at least the Wing Chun that, that we purport to be from. So that's the first thing. It's not exclusive to Wing Chun. And you even see variations of it in, in Okinawan karate, in the Sanchin form. You see some roots of where this stance came from with the, the, knee, the knees turned in, even though the feet are offset. So that is the, um, that is the first thing, is that uh, if we're talking about the Wing Chun knives, but we say that the Yi Ji Kim Yong Ma most likely predates Wing Chun, then already the Yi Ji Kim Yong Ma must be older than the knives. The other thing is when it comes to the knives in particular, um, there's really not a whole lot to indicate that uh, knife techniques existed before Yip Man's time. Um, if you look at uh, some of the other Chan Rashan students, uh, you might have a very hard time finding something called Pat Town. Though, if you look at uh, the Lerm Chan lineages, namely Gulo village, he didn't teach any knife in his later period. Um, now, maybe he just decided not to teach the knife, but but that would be a speculation on top of a speculation, and you cannot say therefore. Um, Lerm Chan did not have knife techniques, all right? There's no evidence to suggest he had knife techniques. Uh, there's scant to little evidence that Chan Rashan had knife techniques. Um, Yun Keisan, a contemporary of uh, Yip Man, who some claim that he taught Yip Man stuff or Yip Man stole from him or whatever, whatever makes, whatever makes people the hero of their own stories, fine with me, I don't care. Um, 
but it seems that uh, Yip Man most likely was the originator of Pa Chabdo. And in uh, Yip Man's interview with New Martial Hero magazine, the one from 1972, he says that the knife techniques are derived from the fist fighting techniques. Um, so uh, that those are Yip Man's own words himself. Um, so if Yip Man says that the knife techniques are derived from the fist fighting, then the chicken and the egg story is very easy, uh, easily found out there. That obviously the fist fighting came first. If it's a if the knife knife techniques are a derivation, um, but uh, it also doesn't make sense that Yi Ji Kim Yong Ma is used as a knife stance. Okay, um, there's a saying in Wing Chun: um, if your opponent um, has one sword, okay, yat uh, dou. They say tai sao. Look at the other hand. So if your opponent, for example, has a Chinese broadsword, they say beware of his other hand, because when you're using the broadsword, the other hand can be used to grab and do things and immobilize you as they come here. So they say against one sword, beware of the other hand. If your opponent has two swords, like we have in Wing Chun, they say, Pike, watch out for the footwork. Because if you have two short swords, you're not gonna block a heavy weapon with two short swords, that makes no sense. Someone comes at you with a crazy way, you're gonna stand there and block it with you. Said, no way, that's insane. All right, you'll get crushed. Um, you need to use your footwork to intercept the opponent or to move around the weapon and go forward while closing the gap. So Yi Di Kim Ma, being mainly a developmental stance, doesn't make sense in knife fighting where it's all about movement and footwork if you have two. So um, I can't say that that's absolutely the way it is, but I would say that it, you can listen to my facts as I articulated it and make your own decision from there. So what else we got, Mikey? Um, got an interesting question from Mr. K-Dub. Did reading Wrath of the Dragon alter your perception of Bruce Lee's fighting skill? Uh, no, and here I'm going to flex and sound like a braggart. Um, ah. uh, I was in contact with John Little while he was putting that book together. And I, I proofread it before it came out for the, uh, not for typos or anything, but for like the Chinese stuff. And um, so uh, it, it wasn't like when I read the book, uh, that was the first time I saw it. I mean, if you if you see on the back of the book, I am, um, well, I don't have it with me here. I'm on the back cover with Scott Coker, which is pretty damn cool. And uh, I'm, uh, yeah, there we go. You can see my, you can see my name there on the back. Alex Richter, the Kung Fu genius, right? And uh, if you look in the index, uh, he'll actually, where he got a lot of information from was, you know, Facebook conversation with Alex Richter, right? So um, I, was, I was up on this thing while it was in production. Many of the things in there were things that I had already heard, but what's great with John Little is he put everything together from all the different sources. So it's a, everything is consolidated because a lot of those fights you know, I heard like a little piece from this book, a little piece from here, heard something from that guy. But John Little's book kind of put it all together in a very comprehensive way, um, which um, which made uh, um, it uh, really cool because now it's like a reference for Bruce Lee's fights. It's also pretty mind blowing that no one had 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 the idea to do that book sooner. Um, so, it, no, it didn't change anything uh, different about Bruce Lee's fighting skills. I'm also not someone who's obsessed about Bruce Lee's fighting skills. Um, 
because um, I believe that Bruce Lee was an extraordinary athlete. I believe he was very fast. He was able to represent his art and, 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 and do what he needed to do. And in the times where he did have to kind of step up, as far as we know, he, he did pretty well. Um, but I don't believe that he was like some kind of invincible guy or something like that. I don't believe you need to accept that to be his fan. Um, and I'm much more interested as I get older in his ideas and what do these ideas mean in the modern landscape of martial arts and, and the idea that, you know, oh, who could Bruce Lee beat up or not beat up? Bro, I'm 46, okay? I'm not 18, you know? That kind of stuff was a really big deal when I was younger. Um, but now it's kind of like, whether someone can beat up someone else or not, how does that make you better? How does that knowledge mean anything to you, right? And for me, I, uh, it's all about the application of knowledge and the kind of who can beat up whom. I mean, John Little wrote that book because a lot of a lot of bros online were, yo, but Bruce Lee never fought in UFC. You know, UFC in the '60s, right, was kind of kind of trash. Um, and so he kind of had to write a counter narrative to it, like, no, in fact, look, these are the best sources we have for these various fights Bruce Lee had, and and this is this is what's up. So it's the counter narrative to the yeah, Bruce Lee never fought professionally. In point karate in the 60s, I fought in point karate when I was a kid. Does that mean I have more fighting experience than Bruce Lee? I mean, shut up, you know? Um, but uh, I, I don't care about that stuff. I just find, like, at some point, I don't know, in mid-30s, you get this little shift. And then by your mid-40s, it completes. And you're like, ugh, really? You guys still care about that stuff? People still worried about what Chuck Norris says about Bruce Lee? Can, can anything that come out of Chuck's mouth? change your love or admiration for Bruce Lee. And if it did, I would think it's, you're kind of not really, I'm not, not saying you're no true Scotsman fallacy, but I mean like how much of a Bruce Lee fan are you? If something that Bruce Lee or Joe Lewis said in an interview 20 years ago, gets your panties in a twist. I mean, like get over it. It's okay. People are going to talk shit. Look, Elvis, the King of rock. All right. Are there not people who don't talk shit or Elvis, appropriated black music elvis stole from this guy elvis did this elvis was a dress yeah okay does it change your love for elvis all right no should it no is it people should give less fucks about what these guys have to say um you know that's what i gotta say about that what else you got ah what else i got i was just trying to find that public enemy lyric about like you know people loving elvis but he didn't mean shit to me which is, uh, <laughs> yeah. i don't remember exactly what it was like Sorry, Chuck D. Anyway, um, quick, quick comment here from someone who's really funny. Phil Collins rules that has it having male pattern baldness. And that's all I'm going to say on that right now. You know what I mean? Now, let's get to a proper question. Hey, Sifu, Alex and Mikey. I hope all has been well with you guys. It's from our boy, John Rubio. Question for Sifu, Alex. How important is it to learn Batjamdo applications and does it help translate to open hands? That's a great question. I mean, um, the, the one thing I can say is uh, it, mm, your mileage may vary, okay, because um, the, um, the depth and understanding of the knives and how they work as a, as a weapon and how that might translate to your empty hand fighting depends on the level of depth of the person's knowledge who is teaching you the knives. Uh, remember that um, Yip Man did not really have uh, kind of a standardized way of teaching where it's like if you if you learn something that uh, when you completed it you would get a certificate and then okay you've done it he kind of taught some people some people learn more some people learn less 
the knife techniques, uh, I think, because a lot of people don't know how to use them against weapons, they immediately go, well, how does this help my unarmed fighting? Well, any type of weapons sparring or training is going to improve your ability to fight unarmed because you learn new things about distance, okay? When you have to now fight against someone with a long weapon, you learn how to overcome that with much faster and much better footwork. So when someone is giving you a high kick and you have to close that gap, that feels by comparison a lot easier, right? If you can close the gap with two short knives against someone with a spear, well, then someone coming at you with a high roundhouse kick, th that gap should be a little bit easier to close. So there are very direct ways that that's going to help you in terms of bridging the gap once you've done it against long weapons and then you apply that back to normal fist fighting. A lot of the knife techniques can be modified to be used with the hands, but in actuality, it's quite close to um, to to BUG itself. Uh, so a lot of the open hand techniques and the slashes and cuts are very similar to tan sao, sakeng sao, the things you would learn in the BUG form anyway. Um, and so I would say yes, but it depends on the depth of the person teaching you the knives. But great question. Someone asked if you had a neurological condition. <laughs> Yeah, it's entirely possible, but living in the States and being uninsured means all my old man injuries. Um, I can add, you know what, I'm going to question, I'm actually going to address this now while we're talking about it, because I know that occasionally people see this and think, is this because of all the drugs that he used to do? Oh, and, okay. You know, the truth of the matter is, it's very, very too long, didn't read. The last eight years have been a bit challenging, and this all started when I had a a business partner that kind of screwed up a lot of my life and it's not kind of even though that has now been and gone this thing comes and goes right and uh i've been to a couple of doctors i've been to a chiropractor about it you know what i mean i think really i need to go to that really killer um acupuncturist that you told me about like yes weekend, right if, if if i can wait in the line for that long i think that he might be out of put the needle in the right spot and actually just kind of stop it or calm it down. Sure. But the main problem is, is that whatever this thing is, um, because I live in the States and I'm freelance, I don't have health insurance, so I cannot get it fixed. So, you know, if there are any um, saucy ladies or men out there that want to swap their uh, company health insurance for a British citizenship, I'll marry you. you know, <laughs> we can make this yeah. happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's also, we, we haven't talked about this, but one of the things, one of the goals for 2024 is I want to, build the Patreon even more because I actually want to be able to pay for your health insurance. Because every time you have all these things that, you know, you need to have taken care of so you can have a better quality of life and train, I'm like, you know, I, I, I know what the health insurance is going to cost a month. And I think if we push the gas pedal and get more Patreon supporters, I, I would very much love to, to take care of that because I think um, that no one should have to worry about that kind of stuff so that you don't have to answer weird questions about why, why you have a, a tick in your neck or something like that, you know, when it's it's something that you really can't do too much about right now. Uh, luckily, all the stuff that's wrong with me, no one can see. <laughs> you hide it so well. It's, it's, it's... So, um, yes. oh, hey, I'm man, Randall Davis. I've heard Wing Chun was an offshoot of ballroom dancing. I guess the way he does it is probably correct. <laughs> yeah, well, um, actually... Uh, I'm going to make a little bit of a uh, of an analogy there, right? So certain types of dances where you have to maintain a fixed distance from your partner have some parallels to Wing Chun, all right? Although not necessarily in maintaining a fixed distance, but for example, 
when we pursue an opponent that is moving away from us. Uh, it's a very common mistake, especially for beginners, when your partner moves away and then you're like, oh, and then you have to catch up to stay with them, right? Um, because we want to stay at a certain range where we can keep stick, keep pressure, keep smothering our opponent's arms while we're hitting so that we can kind of, you know, put the heat on them. And if they go for something wide or whatever, we're ready there to check it because we have a lot of physical pressure on their body. So you can feel not just changes in the arms, but changes when they load up, when they come in, when you're sticking and swarming with a lot of forward pressure, you can feel these changes. So you need to stay a certain distance to be able to activate that forward pressure to keep that stick. But for beginners, when they learn it with something simple like chain punching, they start chain punching, their partner backs away, and then they're like, oh, right, and then they catch up, their partner backs, so it's like their partner backs away, like, oh, and their partner backs away, like, oh, kind of like the way a slinky goes down the stairs. A slinky goes down, and then it gets caught up with, right? So what I tell my students is you have to imagine, almost like in ballroom dancing, when your partner moves away from you, you don't go, oh, and then you go this way here, because in that moment, when the distance is too great, you're right at the end of those long punches from your opponent, and you need to be jamming them, not there where you can't reach them with your chain punches, but they can hit you. So I tell the students, you don't chase like a slinky, you chase like a shadow. That's why it's called toying, chase the shadow. And it's a little bit like keeping that constant distance in ballroom dancing. So anyway, there is an analogy there, but whether it came from it, I don't know. It depends on the lineage. Mm-hmm. So, whole cosmos, is the history so fragmented because of the Cultural Revolution Mao? Um, well, um, it's, well, it's difficult to say for sure. Certainly, um, the mass destruction of Chinese culture during the, during the Cultural Revolution, which included books and all sorts of um, historical texts and anything that had to do with the old ways, those things you had to basically destroy them in public to prove your loyalty to the uh, dear leader. And uh, it's it's difficult to imagine um, that things re pertaining to Chinese martial arts history were not lost during that time. Having said that, it's not purely a cultural revolution issue. Um, what, what a lot of people, and so one of the things I learned about from studying history, right, so me putting my, I'm pretending to be a scholar cap, um, is that um, one of the fallacies that people make when they think about history is to assume your mo modern day way of looking at things, your modern viewpoints, your modern attitudes, modern takes, and imprinting this onto another time period. Um, and while we kind of understand that, oh, maybe people were more conservative or more religious in another time, we still kind of have it on the brain like, yeah, but people are still kind of people. And I'm sure they kind of still thought that in, in culturally 100 years ago, 200 years ago, while there's always things in human culture that always exist, jealousy and greed and the petty shit between people and kindness and all that kind of stuff. Um, people really did look at things differently and they had a massively different worldview. And one of the things in the old days was universal literacy was not really a thing until more modern times and certainly not in china you had to be part of certain classes of society to even have access to education and many kung fu sifu especially ones just teaching village kung fu styles of uh, family kung fu styles we're not talking about military martial arts um many of them weren't even literate so many sivus in our past within our own lineage for sure especially when we go into the 1800s and, and and earlier 
were most likely not even literate. So they couldn't even write these things down if they wanted to. So that is already one huge strike against uh, historical records in Chinese martial arts. Um, the, the other problem is, for whatever reason in general, there are not a lot of manuals that were written about Chinese martial arts, especially individual styles or sects or clans, because they did not want this information to go out. In fact, the idea of a Kung Fu book or a manuscript is really more of a 20th century idea and, and not something that you would see very readily in the old days. Um, and yeah, so that, that was just unfortunately the way it was because a lot of Southern martial arts were usually developed by people who are also um, uh, anti-Qing rebels. Uh, they wouldn't have wanted to write down their methods or anything about their style or anything about their group for fear of getting found out by the Qing government. So uh, if we look at the specific styles that we think about, Wing Chun or Hakka styles, Pak Mei, Southern Mantis, uh, White Crane, these styles that were kind of used by some of these anti-Qing revolutionaries, well, they're not going to write anything down. Everything was in coded language. You need to know the secret knocks to get in the door, the secret codes, the secret handshakes, everything before they're even going to look at you. So the idea of them writing any of these things down it just is a non-starter. And that's the reason why many of the Southern styles, which were developed in a, that pocket of China, remember the government headquarters of the Qing was in the north. It was in Beijing. So in those days before modern mass communication, the south of China is geographically the furthest away from Beijing, obviously maybe with the exception of like extreme Western China. And so that was the hardest part for the Qings to control. So in the south, that's where everyone was getting very rebellious. And most of the Kung Fu styles from that period, you will find that their histories are slight to major plagiarisms of the other ones because they all had these fanciful stories from where they came from, which made them feel like they came from some glorious Shaolin temple or something like that. But when you look at five pattern Hongkun, there's also a, a Wing Chun character in there. Uh, when you look at the history of Hong Guards, the still the five elders, the history of Wing Chun, the five elders, uh, there's even a five elder style, you know, and these are all people copying each other's homework. All right. These are the, the, the gospel writers are all secretly copying Mark, who secretly copied Paul. Okay, so th th that is that is where our stories are coming from. They're, they're copies of plagiarisms, of people changing shit around to suit their needs or whatever. So it's the, um, it's the same problem. So those are some of the issues with the fragmented history and at least the record keeping of. Okay, so here's the next question for you. Um, Vortex Sophia, hey. Do you ever train Sifu Kernspeck's reimagination of Wing Chun? It's kind of really cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, I trained with him when I was in Hong Kong because he came on my Hong Kong tour. And, and it's really fantastic. I mean, what, what Sifu is doing is kind of other level stuff with controlling the way you move. But you kind of are basically you're, you're falling into your own traps when, when, when you train with him. He really knows exactly how to exploit um, you know, the common movement patterns, the balance issues, the positional issues that people tend to run into. And so he's exploiting this, you know, at a really, really high level. And for people who haven't experienced it, it probably looks a little weird, like he's just touching, he's kind of pushing you around. But when you've been on the receiving end of it, it's 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 quite impressive. Um, it's 
it's not entirely the way I look at Wing Chun, to be quite honest, but it's, it's, you cannot deny the skill. Um, and it's really, um, really fantastic. So yeah, he's, he's on a, he's on a different level. So yeah. What else okay. you got? Oh, we go. We got a few nice ones actually. Here we go. Um, Django 67. Do you think people like Jock Norris or Joe Lewis would admit to losing to a sparring match with Bruce Lee? Uh, difficult to answer. Joe Lewis is dead. <laughs> so, um, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, um, there's a pretty thorough examination of the Joe Lewis, Bruce Lee thing in John Little's new book, uh, Wrath of the Dragon. Uh, it was a really great chapter in there, which put together things from different Joe Lewis interviews. Joe Lewis, uh, in a similar vein to the late Gene LaBelle, um, tended his his opinion on bruce lee tended to blow with the wind a little bit um when when it was popular and cool to praise bruce lee then he would do so and when he maybe felt bruce lee was getting too much shine uh then suddenly uh, he was just a lightweight who wouldn't be able to do anything or whatever um given the eyewitness accounts of kareem abdul jabbar and herb jackson with what happened between bruce lee and joe lewis I, I have no reason to doubt that um, Bruce did, in fact, put him in his place in in that that exchange that uh, happened after Joe Lewis hurt Herb Jackson, um, because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar also attests to that. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, by the way, also sparred Joe Lewis, and Joe Lewis couldn't do shit against him. All right, but of course, that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is also a very special human being. All right, so we, we need you know, but I'm just saying. All right. The idea that Joe Lewis was also invincible is also not true, okay? Um, and so, uh, again, this kind of comes back to my previous comment of who gives a shit, okay? And it's not, not, I'm not trying to put you on blast for asking that, but you've read the letter that Chuck Norris wrote while Bruce Lee was alive. It was very apologetic because apparently Chuck was getting a little bit lippy while Bruce was around and wrote a very apologetic letter to Bruce Lee saying like, no, I think you're one of the best. And, and I admit that you're my teacher and everything like that. And that was when Bruce was alive. Then you fast forward to the eighties or to the nineties and he's on Conan O'Brien or whatever, going your letterman going, well, you know, Bruce Lee didn't really fight professionally, fight professionally. Okay. Point karate in the sixties. Okay could hardly be considered professional fighting, okay? Um, as uh, Bill Wallace said, you could uh, go to a tournament in uh, in Chicago and beat the guys there and be a world champion. Then the next weekend, you could go to Florida, be a world champion of something else. And so in point fighting karate, for people who don't know, is basically tag, okay? Um, you hit the guy, or but you, it's not full power, most of the time not even to the face. You tag the guy or, or, or you would have tagged him or it would have been a punch if it were a real fight. And then the ref stops, you get a point and they reset you. So it's like it's like it's like flag football for martial arts. OK, so the idea that that, uh, you know, point karate sparring and being the champion of point karate sparring somehow made you a professional fighter with fight experience uh, that is unassailable is kind of ridiculous. OK. Um, at least Joe Lewis uh, got into full contact kickboxing and fought some full contact matches, um, which his very first full contact match 
is on YouTube. I think you could type in like Joe Lewis first kickboxing match and they have a version where he narrates it. And he talks about like the stuff that he worked with Bruce to be able to, to fight and beat the guy. Right. So um, who cares what Chuck, I mean, look, Chuck Norris, what is the best thing Chuck Norris ever did? Let's be honest. Chuck Norris never looked better on screen than when he was fighting Bruce Lee in Way of the Dragon. Um, although Chuck went on to make a lot of his own movies, which some were, if you get around the acting, some of the fight scenes were okay. I thought the fight scenes in the octagon were pretty good. Um, but let's be honest, when did he look the best? He looked the best when he was with Bruce. Because like dancing, depends with your who your partner is, right? And I, you know, I have respect for Chuck Norris as a martial artist. And, uh, you know, he, he continued to train. He trained with the Gracies and, you know, he continued to expand and, and he did all of his stuff. But every time I, I hear kind of some weird salty thing he said about Bruce Lee, I always think about that apologetic letter that he wrote. And I go, what's your deal, bro? So you, you're either lying to us or you were lying to Bruce. And so that's my only point. Outside of that, Chuck Norris is great. I would love to meet Chuck Norris. I think Chuck Norris is fantastic. I used to own a total gym in the 90s. Um, so uh, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Who cares? Okay. Matt Russell, you've criticized actors like Michael B. Jordan for having good form on screen, but li little visible experience behind it. How would you rate... Uh, Kanunu Reeves, especially between Matrix and the John Wicks? Um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that I said he had good form. I mean, he had the basic, I like when, when he's in Creed, you can see like he knows jab, cross, uppercut, hook. But um, I wouldn't say his form was that great. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just looked very mechanical. I mean, for me, it was like the boxing equivalent of, um, you know, someone playing a villain in a movie and using a German accent, uh, and they're, the actor is not German, right? Or, or the actor has to speak German as the bad guy and he's an American actor or she's an American actress and they feed them the lines and they say the German with a very obvious American accent, but they're supposed to be German. That's, for me, that's the boxing equivalent of that. Like, for if you've seen boxing, you've trained boxing, you look at it and you go, well, I mean, for an actor, pretty good. Um, but uh, you can see that he, this is like very new training in his body, right? Um, I think Keanu Reeves may has made a huge jump from uh, The Matrix to the John Wick films, just in terms of his own physical prowess. The Matrix, movie, the Matrix films looked great because you had Yun Woo Ping doing the choreography, and Yun Woo Ping can make anyone look good, almost anyone, but most anyone he can make them look good. When you look at the first Matrix film, you can see like like um, Keanu. There was a scene I think very early on when he's uh, being trained by Morpheus, and he's like very stiff, like his body's very stiff when he's moving, but the choreography is still very tight because it's Yun Woo Ping. But when you look at him now in John uh, Wick, wow. I mean, uh, he's gone on to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu and to really learn how to shoot a gun and, and do tactical shooting and stuff like that. Um, you know, and everyone says he's kind of an all-around nice guy to boot. I mean, how can you not root for Kanunu Reeves? For, uh, sorry, Keanu Reeves. Um, he looks uh, 
No, I thought he looked great. I mean, some people complain about the last John Wick film kind of going on way too long and just being like pure fight porn. But I mean, it was the natural progression with those films and I quite, I quite enjoyed it. So, um, uh, well, yeah, well, no, I think he's made huge uh, progress. Yeah. I mean, like, have you ever seen any of that footage of them all trained, like, you know, like him, Carrie Ann Moss, like, uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, like all of those, like uh, all those guys, like having to go through like this rigorous six month training before they even filmed the matrix and like yeah. them basically stretching them. So when they did all those high kicks, it was like them actually doing it. There wasn't yeah. that, that many body doubles doing it because they were like, you know, you when Wu-Ping wanted, uh, as did like the Wachowski sisters wanted it to be very, very, you know, I don't know, as realistic as a fucking video game film is, you know what I mean? But like, yeah, you know, like it, it was, I mean, I don't know. Like it was like, I think that was what it was that kind of really, really started his interest in actually being doing martial arts in a kind yeah. of any kind of real serious way after that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. But anyway, that that's my two cents. I'm leaving. All right. That. What else? What, what else we got here? Okay. Um, if you could time travel, would you choose to witness the roots origin of Wing Chun or when it began to branch out? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, supposing I can only go once, I don't know if I'm going to, in this, in this hypothetical, am I staying stuck in that time period or do I get to come back? Um, if I don't get to come back and I have to go back in time, I'd rather, I'd, I'd rather go back to the 1950s and when Yip Man started teaching, because I think I could impress him with my Cantonese and my knowledge of the future. And be like, all right, <laughs> here's what we're gonna do. All right, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I I love history. I would very much love to have some kind of definitive explanation as to where Wing Chun came from and and answer some of these kind of very difficult questions to answer. However, um. It's it's painfully obvious to anyone who teaches Wing Chun. I mean, I should say, at least to anyone who really thinks about it or who's not just a complete ideological, dogmatic, conservative tool that thinks that the Wing Chun they're teaching is 100% the same way that their Sifu taught it, which is 100% the same way that their Sifu taught it. I mean, there are certain lineages within the Yip Man system that really think that everything they do is exactly the way it was in the old days. And there's really nothing to substantiate that um wing chun constantly evolves every martial art evolves hong kun has added and deleted forms and changed methods over the course of its history wing chun has done the same thing any martial art that cares about its interaction with the outside world um i.e its ability to fight with it uh, should be updating it now i mean we can level some serious criticisms about wing chun not not staying relevant in the arena of sport fighting compared to modern day MMA, but th there's a deeper thing in there that it, it, that's not really what we do. And I think some Wing Chun people didn't get the memo. They're like, oh, it's all just fighting. Why can't we just go in MMA and fight? Because that's a specific sport with specific rules and you need, you need to have a certain uh, game to be able to do that. And you're not just going to walk in there and as someone who goes to a Wing Chun class, goes to a Wing Chun class twice a week and, and run over someone with your chain punches, right? By the way, my um, 
my my uh, headphones batteries might die out. So if they die out, I'm just going to take it off and go straight through the camera. So if there's a moment when I die out, just give me a signal. All right, and uh, and 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 then I'll I'll take them off. Um, so uh, if I'm convinced, if you could go back to the origins of Wing Chun, I don't think that shit would blow you away as much as people like think no but back then they had the fat king and the root and they could blow you away with just touching you and and all oh, they didn't use a pushing engine they use all this kind of stuff uh no if they were really fighting they they weren't doing that stuff because you 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 can only blast someone away like that who has agreed to put their hands on you all right and then you use your magic fat king to push them away if someone doesn't want to oblige you and they just want to piece you up from distance and fire heavy shots at you or just run right through you and take you down, you're going to need more skills than just this magical stuff, right? Um, but I think that, and I mean magical, like the guys who, I don't mean like my Sifu's magic hands, I mean like the mat, like people like, you know, oh, look at this guy flying away or whatever. But I mean, yeah, but do do that to a real MMA fighter. It's just it's not going to happen, right? Or just do it to someone who's not playing your game in any, any, any way, right? So... I think you would go back and you would find a very rudimentary version of Wing Chun because if you could go back to the 1850s, think of the mentality of the average person from the 1850s in the Western world and think of them in, in, in China, most likely ignorant of the world outside of China, maybe even ignorant of the world outside of their village. There's no mass communication. Don't forget this. Um, they know just what their Sifu to told them, and maybe they were lucky enough to see another Kung Fu style. There was no TV. There was no YouTube. They don't really know what the other guys are doing, and everyone's keeping everything sequestered in their own little Kung Fu sects. So um, you would find people who are most likely tremendously superstitious, um, very ignorant of the world around them, because that would be everyone at that time period, regardless of where they came from. Um, people who are very... Um, suspicious of other people stealing their stuff or whatever. So you would probably find a very rudimentary, a very unrefined and very ignorant version of Wing Chun. Um, and that's that's my honest opinion. That's what I think you would find. All right? Everyone wants to imagine, no, 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 back then they were fighting all the time. They were really, really super good. Yeah, maybe for that time, maybe for their village. But um, you mean to tell me if you went back to the 1700s and you grabbed someone um, you know, who, who was the top Kung Fu guy in China at that time, do you really think that person would last around an MMA against a modern MMA fighter in his weight class? No, 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 no. And that's not to throw shade on them. You have to look at people in their time period, all right? How good were they compared to their contemporaries, not compared to people today? Because everyone today is riding and sitting on the shoulders of all the people who came before. All right. We know what they did and we start where they finished. So it's not a fair comparison to compare modern day fighters to ancient fighters. You have to look at people in their time period, but you also have to be realistic. All right. If you took someone who is the size of Mighty Mouse Johnson, who is the best Kung Fu fighter in whatever style from the 1800s, and you put him against Mighty Mouse Johnson, both in their prime, there's no question. The, the Chinese Kung Fu fighter has not seen someone who can string striking and grappling in such a seamless way. They would not have seen it. They would not have been prepared for it. So anyway, what else you got? Mm, okay, cool. Here we go. Randall Davis. Yes, you're right. I am a cheeky bugger. Love you anyway, though. Um, legit question. I find the knives and long pole great for training grip strength and gross motor skill. 
with the long pole as well as distance. Would you agree with those observations, KFG? Um, yes, um, but I also have to admit the long pole is also really fun for fighting with the long pole and sparring with the long pole. So I, I don't know how it's done in other lineages, but I often get this from a lot of other Wing Chun people. Like uh, they're always looking for the tertiary um, benefits of the weapons. Like, oh, the knives are going to make your wrist stronger or something like that. Yeah, all right. You also should learn how those knives work against other weapons and how you would legitimately fight that way. Oh, the pole's really good for a type of grip, grip strength or a type of movement. Yeah, but I mean, don't you do cheek one and left one and actually spar with the pole with your partners? Like there's a whole thing of using the pole in fighting, which is so much fun. So I don't want to reduce the Wing Chun weapons to their utility to unarmed, although it's obviously there and it does impact it and it does influence it and it does improve it. But the weapons, if, you, if you're learning them properly, in my opinion, you should also learn how do you use the Pacham Do against a spear? And try it and practice it and use those methods and refine them. How to use it against a sword. How to use it against a flexible weapon. How to use it against a pole. And actually train that because those are what those sets are for. They're for teaching you how to fight against different types of weapons. And that, that should be part of it. Same with the pole. Uh, the strength training benefits of the long pole are very, very clear. Stance, core, shoulders, arms, grip, and the ability to project your power through a much, much longer arm so to speak yeah it's all there um grip strength 100 percent um distance obviously doing long pole is like doing danchi with a nine foot long arm especially when you're in fighting someone else with a pole but let's not forget these are also weapons that have real application and that shit is so much fun what else we got um I, ap all right lads i'm late to the stream and we'll watch what i've missed later question Good. Question off topic, but what light can you shed on Wu Nyang, the butler? Shady character or no? <laughs> yeah, Wu Nyang, the, the, uh, known as Nan Zai, uh, by uh, Bruce Lee and the family. They called him An Zai um, because Wu would be his family name. So he says, An Zai means like boy. So they called him like Nan Bo, like An Boy, um, Nan Zai. Um, he was a, you know, his, I, I believe that his family, they were the servants, the live-in servants for the Lee family when he was growing up. And um, he was the son. So Bruce Lee kind of grew up with him and knew him. And then when Bruce Lee came back to Hong Kong and made those films, he basically hired the son of his, of his parents' servant to be his servant, right? So it's like, it's, it's like the, um, the family lineage of Bruce Lee servants, right? So the, the Wu family, they serve the, the Lees, right? Um, no, I don't think he was a shady character. I think he was quite typical of the people who are in, you know, that Hong Kong is a very classist society. It still is in, in many respects. And if you were of the class that, um, you know, nowadays, most of the, the maids and the servants in Hong Kong, they either come from the Philippines or they come from Indonesia. But in those days, the, um, the servants were Chinese. They were just a really poor, uneducated Chinese. So, Wu Nan is from, from that type of upbringing. So he was probably not, I don't know how educated he was. I do know that he did spend time in England, which would give me the impression he probably knew how to speak English. He was probably, 
maybe he did have a chance to have a better education than, than let's say the rest of his family. Um, but no, he was obviously, if you've read the Bruce Lee drug letters, you know, that Wungan, he wasn't shady. He was the fall guy, unfortunately. And I think socially he was in a position where Bruce Lee could say like, you know, we're going to, the drugs that are coming in from Bob Baker are going to be sent to golden harvest care of you. So if this ever got found out, it's, it's falling on Wungan. Now, does this say anything great about Bruce Lee's character? I mean, people are complex. Everyone loves black and white. Um, he was the greatest Kung Fu guy, the greatest this, that, or whatever. Therefore, he didn't have some things personally that were like a little weird. Come on, we all do. This is part, human beings are complex. You can like someone for certain characteristics and other characteristics of their character can be a complete turnoff. And you have to learn, in my opinion, to compartmentalize people if you're looking at them for their uh, success in certain aspects, right? If you're looking, you know, in general, people should be good and treat each other well. But, you know, if you're looking for spiritual guidance, you should find someone who's really a proper spiritual guru and not necessarily make the guy who's teaching you how to punch and kick and beat the shit out of people. Your your guru, your your uh, philosopher, your the guy who gives you all the nutrition tips, the guy who teaches you everything like sometimes if they students put too much of a burden on the martial arts instructor to be everything perfectly that when you find some of these things, it's like, uh. Oh, he's not perfect at one thing. No, no, no. Bruce Lee was a genius in martial arts. And if that's what you care about, that's what you get inspired from Bruce Lee and his writings about. And yeah, you could say, yeah, there were some things about him that maybe were not that great, but you didn't live a minute in his shoes with the success he had, with the problems he had, with the things that he was facing. So you really cannot stand in judgment of how someone ran his life during that time. If anyone got the level of fame that Bruce Lee got in their early 30s, talk to me about how perfect you would conduct every aspect of your life, right? So that's why it, even when I talk about the drug letters or the Coke spoon or stuff, it's not about being judgmental about Bruce Lee. These are just facts. These are just things we know. And Wungan was a bit of the fall guy. And I don't think he was a shady guy. I think that the moment Bruce Lee died, he left, he went to England. Um, and there may be reasons for that. Uh, it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast. But no, I don't think he was a shady guy. Tom Bleeker tried to make him out to be a shady guy. But Tom Bleeker also thought cortisone was anabolic steroids. So take that with a grain of salt. All right, what else we got? Let's wrap it up. Maybe two or three more of these. Okay, quick quick uh, comment for you. Alex, stop ruining all of these grown men's kung fu fantasies. Never. That's my job. <laughs> Such a Wing Chun buzzkiller. No, I'm kidding. Um in your opinion, how do you rate Denzel Washington's on-screen fight scenes in film like The Equalizer and Book of Eli? Okay, so I I have to admit, I started watching The Equalizer in Austria last year. Um, and uh, we were watching it kind of late, and it was like too late to finish it. And then I'm like, oh, this movie is so good. I have to finish it. But I have not finished the first Equalizer, which means I have not seen two and three yet. But from what I've seen of it, I was like, wow, this is really good. Kind of this kind of like John Wick style, like the the, the guy that doesn't look like it can like totally fight like a badass. Um, no, I think he's great. But um, I, I, re I really have to finish watching those movies to have a better um, a better opinion of that. The Book of Eli, I didn't watch either. I, I don't really have that much time for movies these days. Two kids, a martial arts school, a fledgling podcast and uh, a reading habit that is excessive uh, pretty much takes all my time for most things. Uh, but great question. What else? Uh, maybe we got 
one or two more. Let's say and then we'll call it a day. Couple of couple of quickies on or not. We'll see, but you know. Do you believe that Wing Chun originated at Shaolin and that Shaolin martial arts came from India by the Buddhist monk Bodhidharma? No. No to both of those. Yeah. I knew that would be a quick answer. There you go. No, and and also if 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 people go, well, that answer was kind of short. What's your proof? You have to understand, I'm not the one making the claim. When people make positive claims, martial arts come from Shaolin, Wing Chun comes from Shaolin. That's a positive claim. And when you make a positive claim, you have the burden of proof to prove it. It's not my burden of proof to disprove it. Uh, there's little to no evidence of this existence of a Southern Shaolin temple. And if we're talking about the Northern Shaolin temple in Henan, how did Southern martial arts come from the Northern temple? Makes no sense. Southern temple, no one's ever seen it. Supposedly existed, but we don't know. And how come all of these stories are oddly similar to other stories. If you look at the first original Shaolin story, it doesn't come from martial artists, it comes from the Hong Moon. Go read The Hung League by Gustav Schlegel. You can get a PDF of it, uh, and you can read the original Shaolin account that had nothing to do with martial arts, but it had five elders. The Chinese Kung Fu people just plagiarized this story, changed the names, and said that's where they came from. But even so, the burden of proof is not on me. Just because it's written in a book, the book is not a primary source. It's just somebody writing what someone else told them. You need to go to the primary sources. If it's written in a book, where did that guy get it from? This guy. Where did he get it from? Where did he get it from? You got to go all the way back until you find the original one. And when you find the original one, it was just some guy who made some shit up. Uh, it's not in a book. It's not. There's no evidence for this. There's no evidence for it. None whatsoever. Okay. Um, all right. So, yeah. If Bruce Lee was still living today, what do you think his views on MMA or the UFC would be? Uh, we'd either love it or hate it. I assume he would probably like it. I mean, think about it. He would be already. He was already quite. Would be a little older when it first came out. And I think it would be really interesting. It would be a, uh, um, a kind of way for him to see if some of his theories uh, kind of panned out. And I think he would be excited to see how people like John Jones use kind of his oblique kick, that straight side kick to the knee, the rear leg straight kick to the knee, the elbows, the straight punches, the, the ability to switch leads, all the stuff that's becoming more prevalent in modern MMA, the ability to blend things rather than just being a grappler or whatever. Um, no, I think he would like it. But again, that would be my speculation. I mean, who knows? Um, who knows? Okay, so yeah, one last one. Um... Here we go. I heard long pole, long pole came from boatmen, the long pole being a boat pushing navigating tool. Do you think this is true? Mm, uh, there is some evidence to indicate that um, wherever the long pole came from, especially the what we call Tan Taokwan, the, the single headed pole, um, because uh, Wing Chun uses a very, very long pole. We don't use a staff. Never call it a staff. Okay. We go, oh, do you guys use the staff in Wing Chun? I would say no. They're like, what's that thing on the wall? That's a pole. That's not a staff. All right. Staff is normally shorter and you can use both ends. In Chinese, called sheng one, double-headed pole. You can use both ends. The Wing Chun long pole is tapered. You only use one end. It's used a lot more like a spear. And we call it tan one, which means single-headed pole. So it's a lot more like using a spear, right? And there is some evidence to indicate that it may have something to do with the polar who would move the, the the junk, the boats, those flat bottom boats that they would move between towns when you know, they're moving an opera troupe from town to town or whatever. And they were done left-handed, meaning the left, like if the boat is going this way, 
I use my right hand to steer it and the left hand, it just kind of stays in place. And that then translated into the pole. That's why the original Lokdin Bunguan was called the left-handed pole. Now, there's another reason why they use the left hand. It was also to counter the Mongbaguaguan, um, but that is for students who are learning the long pole for me. That's a far, I cannot explain that in, a, in an audio podcast uh, like this, but um, uh, there is some evidence. Uh, is it 100% uh, home run, knocked out of park, that the long pole comes from boatmen 100%? That's exactly what it is. No. Is there some evidence to indicate that it might be that way? Yes. Is it also possible that there are parallels between using a nine-foot long pole to beat someone and using a nine-foot long pole to steer a boat through shallow water? Yes. So that coincidence might also lead to the hearsay, or it might... So you have to realize it's not black and white, all right? That, that's another problem with people when they look at things historically. It's not Wing Chun pole came from boatmen or it didn't it could have it also might not have it also might have been influenced it also might have been a projection oh see the way we use it is similar to the way they use those on the boats you see it's very similar to that and then that just kind of gets baked into the lore and you don't know where it is because there are no primary sources from that time period so anyway that's pretty much it from me today. This was a great season. Season three was awesome. We're going to come back with some new episodes, some great interviews, um, and uh, you will eventually see the awesome quiz show. I will not tell you who won, whether it was Dre or Mikey, um, but uh, I, I hopefully we can have the quiz show by next week. Of course, it depends on whether Andrew can get it edited in time. Uh, I don't know, Mikey, if you're on that, do you think Andrew's going to be able to get it edited by next week? Yeah, I think so. He's going to have okay. all the files by tonight, so everything should okay. be good. All right, so, so next Monday, same bad time, same bad channel, 5 p.m. It's a pre-recorded quiz show, but when you guys are in the live chat, I want you guys to try to answer the questions in live time. So don't look it up on your phone because I'm going to be asking questions from season one, season two, season three, and see if you guys can uh, keep up with the boys here. So anyway. Um, awesome. Thank you so much, guys. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much for an awesome season. And we'll be ready with more for season four. Take care, guys. Thanks for the support. Join us on Patreon, link below, so Mikey can get some health insurance. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Word is I'm a kung fu genius. Technique speaks for me, not lineage. Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one. Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seagung. And I produce masters. You surpass us. Your kung fu stiffer than corpse and caskets. City Wing Chung is the house I built. Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt. Alex Richter, always the victor.